Every fall, I coach my little girl's soccer team. Uh, they're in first grade, and uh, I like to joke that uh, coaching first grade soccer, it's actually not soccer, it's just teaching kids how to run on a field that also has a soccer ball on it, uh, so there's not much actual coaching that's taking place, but I do love it. I love getting to spend time with the kids, and I love soccer, so it's a time to have a little fun at the same time. Last year, as I was coaching, uh, there was one little boy who all season was having a real hard time. He, uh, he was one of the larger kids on the field. Just taught, He was head and shoulders above everybody else. And uh, he had a lot of power to him. Uh, if he would get involved in the game, uh, some really interesting things would happen on the soccer field. But this little guy, he just would not engage. The ball would roll right past him, and he just, there was no energy, there was no effort, there was nothing. Finally, about three-quarters of the way through the season, it was a game, and uh, the ball rolls right to his feet. It just, it, it hit his legs and it stopped at his feet. It's in front of him. And he looked, he turned the ball towards the direction his team was going and kicked it as hard as he could. It was his first engagement of the entire season, in practice or game. And me and the other coach ran up to this little guy. We ran up to him and we just put our hands like, you did it! You kicked it! You got it in the right direction! That's incredible! Look, and then we said these important words. We said, you have so much to offer this team. Go get in there. Get the ball. And this guy. Well, then, now, he's about two feet taller than my little Mira, who's also on the same team. Well, now I got this kid who's two feet bigger, running, bulldozing into other kids, going to get the ball, knocking everybody over. My little Mira is afraid. So then we have to pull him aside again and be like, okay, you're doing great. Now try not to hurt other people while you're playing. <laughs> the rest of the season was this remarkable turnaround of this little boy as he learned that he had something to offer the team. Many followers of Christ are like that little boy. They're showing up on church on a Sunday, maybe participating in a small group, doing the things that Christian culture have told them, this is what good Christians do. But when it comes to actually participating in the work that Jesus is doing in his kingdom right now, and what I mean is not what he did thousands of years ago or the stories you've heard somewhere else, but the remarkable, miraculous, powerful work that he is doing in Chicago right now. Many Christians feel like they're sideline players. Many Christians feel like they don't actually have any part in that. They don't have a responsibility. They don't have a equipping or a gifting to be a significant part of what God's up to right in our midst. And that's one of the great lies of the devil that today I wanna to try to weed out of us as a family of Christ. And so I want to start with a simple question to you. Do you know your gifting and assignment from God? Listen to both of those words. Do you know your gifting and your assignment from God? To put it another way, and maybe use a different phrase, do you know the, the set of responsibilities that God has assigned you in order to move his kingdom forward? We're continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, as I said, and and. And as I said, this, every week I feel like we're coming to this text, and every week the text is challenging something about our culture, something about some way we're seeing the world, we're engaging with other people in our society, we're going about our work, we're relating to one another. It's challenging it. And it's causing us every week to kind of pull back our layers and say, what, what is God's design for this? A few weeks ago we looked at God's design for men and women. What are gender different? What does culture say? What does the Bible say? And let's make sure we understand it with clarity. Last week, we talked about the communion meal, 
And we looked at how important this meal was as a unifying expression of the body of Christ. Today, Paul moves into an entire new section. Now, the section he's going to bring us into lasts for three whole chapters. So if you remember our section in 1 Corinthians on food offered to idols, that lasted three chapters. This section on spiritual gifts is going to take us from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14. And if you've got your Bibles and you just read the headers of your sections, now just so you know, the headers over each chapter, those are not inspired text. That's added by your translators and whoever published your Bibles. But they help you understand what's in the sections. He begins with this discussion on spiritual gifts, and then it moves into this focus on the the unity of the body, being one body with all these different parts. And you can see how that flows together. But then he moves in chapter 13 and says, look, beyond the gifts that we have, the most important ethic of the church is love. Love has to guide what we do. And all of this conversation then culminates in chapter 14, which is the heart of what Paul is gonna be getting after in all these sections which is these two particular gifts inside the church, prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now, if you're not from within the church or you're not used to being around Christians talking about these kind of things, the terms prophecy and speaking in tongues can seem like really strange concepts, really strange terms. And what I want to tell you is actually in the Bible, they're very normal terms. And so one of my jobs as a preacher is to introduce you to the normalcy of the biblical worldview and what should be taking place in the life and the body of the church and to do it with theological accuracy and precision. So with that said, we have three chapters ahead of us to look into some really interesting topics around specifically the idea of spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, this idea that every follower of Christ has a unique set of gifts wirings, services, activities that are their responsibilities to live out in order to further the kingdom of God. Now we're going to begin in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. This is his entryway. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. It's his entryway into the conversation. Now again, the reason that he's writing this whole section is because there was a problem. The spiritual gifts were dividing the body of Christ. These different assignments, these different responsibilities were causing the Christians to come into a room together and different people were being elevated as more important or less important or something other than somebody else because of the way God made them. And so Paul takes three chapters in 1 Corinthians to set the record straight and make sure they understand the unity of the body. I'm going to lay today, because it's an introductory passage to this theme, I'm going to try to lay out three foundational principles for understanding spiritual gifts. Pretty simple for us today. Three foundational principles for understanding spiritual gifts. Let me say this up front. We are not going to get to everything that needs to be said on spiritual gifts today, specifically because I have four more sermons to get through where we're going to be going through a lot more of the detail. So if you're you're interested in what we're engaging with, please make sure you're following with us. Three principles. The unity of believers, the splendor of the Trinity, and the mystery of God's design. Let me say it again. The unity of believers the splendor of the Trinity, and the mystery of God's design. Three principles for understanding spiritual gifts. Let's begin in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, says Paul, concerning spiritual gifts, he's turning to a new section now. That's a marker to go to a new section. Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Let's pause right there. 
He's setting this whole section for, up for us. And as we've seen in previous chapters, there's a translation challenge before us in this text. There's a bit of a translation challenge. We especially noticed this in the section when we were talking about gender differences. There were a bunch of particular words. We had to determine what did he mean by that. Now, this comes up in that first word, now concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. What does he mean by that term? Now, later on in this passage, he's very spiritually, particularly if we read verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts. That term, gifts, that's the normal word that Paul uses to talk about spiritual gifts. It actually is the same, it comes from the same term as the word grace in the Bible. Charisma comes from charis, which means grace in the Bible. They're grace gifts, and we'll get more into that in just a moment. But here in verse 1, he doesn't use that word. He uses an entirely different word, which more often than not, when he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, more often than not is not referring to gifts, but is referring to people who are considered spiritual people, which makes a whole lot more sense in this passage. So here's your pastor telling you, I actually think our ESV translations, when they made the decision of how they were going to translate that word in verse 1, I think they got it wrong. I think the best commentaries will tell you the more proper translation of that word is, quote, spiritual people, people who see themselves as spiritual. And I think he's using it in a bit of a backhanded way. He's he's saying, now concerning, quote, spiritual people, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that, and then he goes on. He actually uses this same term later on in in chapter 14, verse 37, when talking about this same topic, in the same context. He says, chapter 14, verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or, quote, spiritual, a spiritual person, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing you are a command of the Lord. Now, what, where does this get us? If, let, let's, flow, let's go through the flow of verses 1 to 3. He says that no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. Now, people have oftentimes looked at that verse out of context, and they've said, I don't get it. Couldn't any random atheist just say, Jesus is Lord? Doesn't Jesus actually, inside Scripture, say that some people will be wolves in sheep's clothing who will sneak into churches unaware and in order to steer God's people astray? And one of the ways they'll do that is they'll pretend to be a Christian. Now, this taken out of context can be quite confusing because obviously that can happen. Anybody can kind of quickly mumble the words and not really mean it. So what's Paul getting after here? Well, in verses 2 through 3, he's going through the different backgrounds that the people in Corinth, in this church, were coming from. And particularly, there were two major backgrounds. Some had come from a very pagan, polytheistic background. We've seen this all through 1 Corinthians. They had come out of worshiping many different gods. That was some of the church. Now, remember, it, was, it could have been a group like this, and, and some folks were coming out of that pagan background. Other folks were coming out of a very Jewish background. Remember, Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. Many folks came from Judaism, synagogue Judaism, and had believed that Jesus was their Messiah. And in verses 2 and 3, he addresses both of them. Listen, he says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Now, oftentimes, most likely what he's referring to here is there were big parades that would take place in Corinth where pagan worshipers would get in these big parades and they'd be led astray down the roads, through the streets, making all their worships, throwing their confetti around, and then they'd end up at a big idol temple and they'd be led astray to false worship. He's particularly looking at, look, some of you came from this background. Then he says in verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. 
Now, who in Corinthian culture would have ever quoted the words, Jesus is accursed? It really doesn't come up in much ancient literature at all, except in one place, local synagogues. Why? Well, because local synagogues were quite upset at the time with a number of Jewish believers, Jewish people from that time, who were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the one place we see that language being used was in some early synagogues where they were saying, look, don't follow this Jesus guy. Whatever you're doing, don't follow him. And that language is being utilized. So Paul looks to both people, both types of people in the church. He says, look, some of you came from this background. Some of you are more associated with this background over here. And then he has this beautiful sentence. No one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can believe that, you, that Jesus is their king, that Christ went to the cross for me, that his blood was shed, that all my sin, past, present, future, can be forgiven, that I can have life right now to the full and life eternally with God despite all of my sin. No one can ever believe those things. No one can say Jesus is my king with an honest face except by the Spirit, except by that one mechanism where no matter what your background is, no matter where you came from, you come in an equal status with every brother and sister in the room on your knees before a holy God. It is only the work of the Spirit that saves wretches who came from synagogue backgrounds and wretches who came from polytheistic backgrounds. It is the same Spirit that saves no matter your background. And so verses one to three are focusing on this first principle, the unity of the believers. He's about to get into a conversation on the way they're different and the way they're wired different and how all their different stories matter and how they're assigned different responsibilities. And he begins by saying, all of you come from very different backgrounds, but you all got in here in the exact same way. Now, now if you are an astute listener to the sermons I've been preaching from this pulpit, you will recognize that that has been a theme we have been preaching on since chapter one of this book. He laid out where he was going in chapter one and he called them to unity. And then he called them to unity when he was talking about gender differences. Last week, speaking on the supper, the Lord's Supper, was that not the anthem of that entire sermon? This unifying meal you take, don't even dare take this meal on a Sunday if you are out of union with a brother or sister in Christ. You first deal with the issue, then you take of the Lord's Supper because it's a symbol of your unity in Christ. And now he kicks off a whole new section, speaking about spiritual gifts, anchoring them in the exact same place. I wonder if this is an issue the church has struggled with. It is, and we continue to struggle with it. For, for many generations, the, the world has been putting these philosophies into play, and the church has been dragging them into the church with them that are decidedly divisive. And the church has always said, it does not matter what background you come from. When you walk into the church, when you believe in Jesus, you have left those philosophies behind. You have anchored yourself on Jesus and it is solely a work of grace. You are a Christ one. And then you look around the body of Christ at all these different people from different races, different nations, different cultures, different everything. And you say, brother, sister, let's break bread together. Let's do life together. Let's, let's, let, let's intermingle our families until we're dependent on one another. That's the beauty of the church. Before we can even speak on spiritual gifts, he anchors us in the first principle, the unity, the unity of believers. Second principle is this, the splendor of the Trinity. 
The splendor of the Trinity. Now, this is really fascinating. Verses four through seven take us into this language where before he lists out these different spiritual gifts, you'll see the Holy Trinity come up in the way he describes them. Listen to this. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. Usually when we speak of Lord, we're talking about Jesus, Lord Jesus. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's coming out of a conversation, let's pause right there, he's coming out of a conversation on unity, and now he flows into this idea of the Trinity having something to say with the way spiritual gifts are to work, out, work themselves out in the life of the church. Now, this is really interesting language. Some of you who have been trained on spiritual gifts in the past, maybe you've come from a church background where you had some idea of spiritual gifts. This verse or th- these three verses kind of break apart everything we've learned about spiritual gifts in the past. Because I think we've been teaching them wrong for many years in the modern Western church. And, and this offers a whole different perspective. Notice, he summarizes in verse seven, he calls them to each is given, quote, manifestations of the spirit. Manifestations of the spirit for the common good. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, those manifestations are shown in three different ways. He uses three different terms. One of the three terms is that word charisma, the Greek word for spiritual gifts. It's mostly used in the New Testament when talking about spiritual gifts. But he used two other words as well, services and activities. That changes the nature of the conversation a little bit. So according to Paul, there are, there are a wide variety of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit is showing up in your midst and doing something miraculous and powerful through a believer. That's a manifestation of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's manifesting himself in your life in one way. And it can happen in three ways, not just one. Oh, do we rob the beauty and the glory of God when we only talk about one of them? It can happen through spiritual gifts. It can happen through services. And it can happen through activities. Okay, let's go through each of them. All three of those are attached to different people in the Trinity. God, first, says this. It says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. The spiritual gifts. Normally when we speak about spiritual gifts, these are a particular anointing, a particular supernatural gifting to do something unique in the kingdom of God. Okay. Now, this can look like a whole lot of different things. There's many different gifts that are described in the scriptures. Uh, for example, we talk about the gift of administration. Some folks have, is Stephanie in the room right now? Stephanie is serving our children right now. Stephanie, who runs administrative for this church, has a wonderful anointing and gifting administratively. And things just happen when she puts her hand over it to make sure things are organized. We talk about the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, in other languages, talk about the spiritual gift of discernment, discerning right and wrong and different different spirits, right? And these are works of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that the Father's not involved or Jesus is not involved, but in some way, they highlight the work of the Holy Spirit who is regularly doing supernatural work through the life of the church. What about services? These are associated with Jesus. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord, Now, why would service be associated with Jesus? Think of the life of Christ for a second. When you think of Jesus, what was he known for? He was known for washing his disciples' feet, caring for those with iniquities and infirmities, stepping into the brokenness of 
of women who had been married seven times prior and were living with a man who was now not, they were not married, to just brokenness and stepping in and caring and serving and, and practically just loving on people. Wasn't that what Jesus did? Now look at this, look at this. That work of spiritually caring for somebody is ranked just alongside spiritual gift as another manifestation of the Spirit. Oh, look, you, you, you should be sensing God, God has this, this beautiful variety of gifts that he's gonna work through the body of the church. And it's gonna look very different. That's why there's unique giftings here. There's, there's spiritual gift and there's service. This is when you sign up for a meal train for one of our members who are in the hospital. Right? What beautiful service this is. This is when you become an approved babysitter for safe families, folks who are caring for uh, orphans and, and children who need short-term placement. This is when you step in and become an adoptive parent. This is when you step in to become a mentor to a troubled teen. This is the kind of stuff you're busy with all week long. Did you know those are manifestations of the Spirit working through you? When you step in and you love people the way Jesus did? How about the third one, activities? Lastly, are activities. Now, this one is interestingly associated with God the Father. It, uh, of there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. Now, why would God be the Father be associated with activities? That same word, it's the root word where we get our English term energy from, activities, gets our root word energies from, is used all the time of God the Father. For, just to throw two verses out, Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, Philippians chapter two, verse three, it talks about the works of God the Father. Now, when we step in and we participate in bold activities, we're using our energy to move the kingdom forward, that also is a manifestation of the Spirit. When Alan gets up here every single week, is Alan, where's Alan at? Alan, our incredible worship leader, when he gets up here and he uses his giftings to lead the body into worship together, that's an activity of the Spirit. He's using energy throughout the week, planning, raising up service leaders, raising up different musicians, and then leading them forward. Where's Christopher Dolan? Christopher, stand up real quick. This guy. Everyone look back at Chris real quick. He's the most humble man you'll ever meet. This guy, week in, week out, making sure that you can come into a room where we have speakers that I don't know how they work, but he knows how they work, and they're at all the right mix, and he's back there leading a team and making sure that no one trips over these ropes right here, gets here first thing in the morning. Activities. Now look at this. Look at this for a second. The point I'm trying to make here is that in order to understand spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Spirit, we need to see the splendor of the Trinity and recognize that has something to do with this. What's the idea here? All of that variety of different giftings and activities and services and the, the invisible work many of you are engaged with throughout the week as you love on your neighbors, as you love on each other, all of that is a beautiful tapestry of the manifestation of the Spirit that paints a picture of the beauty of the Trinity. Now, what is the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal to each other in divinity and yet different in function and, and, and what they do in relation to the human beings that they created. Equal yet different. The body of Christ is a picture of the Trinity when it lives out the manifestations of the Spirit as they've been assigned. Now, work that with me for a little bit. What, Paul... Paul is confronting an issue here. He was talking about those who are called spiritual people. And I think he was using it to say, look, 
There's a problem here. Some of you are looking at different gifts in the church. You're seeing particular people with particular assignments and responsibilities, and you're saying, man, that man or woman, that's pretty cool. They're, they're more important than I am. That was the problem he's facing. And it was on twofold. It was a, two, it was a two, two-phase situation. On the one hand, there were those who had like an inferiority complex, who were looking up at those who had particular giftings. More often, in fact, it's chapter 14, it was two particular giftings, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, which are very public, supernatural anointments with, with, with the Spirit. And they were looking at them, and they felt like, I just don't live up. The little work I do behind the scenes, it's just, it's not as important. So better that I just kind of stay out of things while they do the real work. And then over on this side, these guys who had that particular gifting, they were starting to get a big head. They were, they were starting to say, we're spiritual people. You see how he uses that language there? We're spiritual people. We've, we've got big dog ministry to take care of over here. And you over there, you, you got, you know, the rookie ministry over here. So give us some space. He actually just got done in chapter 11 saying something similar. When he was saying, look, you come to take the Lord's Supper, and, and some of you go ahead and you eat the meal and you get drunk. What were they doing? They were borrowing from the world. Because in the world, what happened? In the world out there, first century Corinth, when a group of people from all different socioeconomic statuses got together, the wealthy ate first and got drunk, and whatever was left went to the poor. And he said, you're going to treat the church like that? You're going to drag that in here with you? That's filthy. And he condemns them for it. Now he's taking the same principle, and he's talking about the way they see their responsibilities and assignments from God, one-upping each other. You see, the gospel equalizes us. That's why he builds the unity of the church first. Every single person, no matter what gifting you have, no matter what service you have, no matter what activities you have, every single person was assigned that in the same exact way. The Holy Spirit put his grace upon your life. No one brought anything in this place to brag about. Paul, Paul, Paul ends up saying, I have nothing to boast about. Nothing in my life. If I understand the gospel, everything I once boasted about in my life, my degree, my pedigree, what I knew, how religious I was, he says it's all filthy to me now for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He goes so far as to say later on, actually in a whole different passage, he says, if, if I'm simply poured out as a drink offering, on the sacrificial offering of your life. He's writing to a church. He says, if I'm just the little extra, this is the Apostle Paul. This is how he saw himself. If I'm just that little extra drink offering, you know the one that a lot of people even forget to do? If I'm just that on the sacrificial offering of of your life of service, I rejoice. Why? Because Paul knew he had nothing to boast about. The gospel had equalized the playing field of all believers. Now, Something about the splendor of the Trinity is important for us to understand about the variety of gifts as they work themselves out in this church. They're going to look different. We're going to be wired different. We have different stories, different personalities, different supernatural giftings, different ways we prefer to serve, different hungers to serve in different places. And that is an expression of the beauty of the Trinity, of God's design, and he's flowing through the church. Now, principle number three, the mystery of God's design. We've talked about the unity of the believers. We've talked about the splendor of the Trinity. And last, we talked about the mystery of God's design. Verses 8 through 11. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Now he's going to start listing these different spiritual gifts. The utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, a couple of things. Let's go through this. Number one, this is not a complete list of all the spiritual gifts. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find one complete list. In fact, if you recall, a few weeks ago when I was preaching on doing everything to the glory of God, we discussed a variety of gifts that the Lord's given us. We talked about those who have the gift of handwriting, beautiful handwriting. And how they can take that and use it for the glory of God by writing personal letters to people in the church. We talked about the gift of of being a person who when you walk in a room, kids are hanging off your feet. I I had some of you respond, follow up with me and said that was so encouraging to know that that's a a work of the spirit. And I said, if if you're the kind of person that goes to a family reunion and all the little nieces and nephews are hanging off your feet, you better get in the kids classroom and angle that gift towards working to the glory of God and his kingdom. And we talked about all the different ways that you are uniquely wired. It's not just these particular gifts. There, there's a millions upon millions of ways the manifestation of the Spirit can work itself through you. And yet, there are also some very particular spiritual gifts that are listed in scriptures. Now, what I want to do, I want to go through these fairly quickly and then get to the point that Paul's at. I'm going to go through this list quickly and give you a bit of an idea of what he means with each of them. Note, particularly when we talk about prophecy and tongues, I'm not going to spend much time today because chapter 14 is coming. And we're going to spend a lot of time in them when we get to chapter 14. First one he talks about, he talks about wisdom. He says, variety of, uh, verse 9, no, verse 8. For to one is given through the, spirit of, uh, through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge. One of the spiritual gifts that God assigns to his church is a heightened sense of wisdom and knowledge. Now, notice this. If you don't have that spiritual gift, you're not off the hook for demonstrating wisdom as a Christian, (laughs) right? You're not off the hook for having a sense of the word of God. Everyone has wisdom and knowledge to a degree. Some people, God particularly anoints with a particular overflow and anointing of the spirit to have particular wisdom and knowledge to be exercised in the church that is exemplary. Now, how do you separate wisdom and knowledge? Typically, wisdom in the scriptures is the ability to take the word of God and apply it into real life circumstances. So here's how this works out. Brian Buss, let me pick on you. This is a man of great wisdom. I'm just gonna pick one person. This is top of my head, right? I could pick many people. I just looked at Brian, front row, okay? Brian, I regularly send you young men who have questions about being a young man. Why do I send them to him? Well, because Brian has a particular gifting of wisdom. In fact, Brian, you're wrestling with what to do with that right now. You and I are having conversations. What does it mean to shape and sharpen that gifting of wisdom, right? So what is this? It's taking the word of God. It's taking people in their real situations they're in, the hardship and the, and the difficulties they're facing. And they don't quite know how to move forward. But I know this. If I get them with Brian, something good's going to happen in their life. And so I have a regular flow over the last few years. Guys, and some of you young men are in this room. You're meeting with Brian right now because he's a man of great wisdom, Right? Now, what's knowledge? Knowledge is a little different. Knowledge is not necessarily, they're so interconnected, it's hard to draw hard lines between this, but knowledge usually is associated with knowing the word of God with great rigor, having a, a strong theological mind so that you can see wrong doctrine and true doctrine. And let me just say this, 
in the ridiculousness of what is modern day theology that is coming at us through podcasts and blogs and popular preachers, we need strong minds to draw firm lines, strong minds to draw firm lines of what is true and what is false from the word of God. Because we as a church are being bombarded by ideas that sound biblical that are so heretical, it's ridiculous. And so we need to keep raising up strong people who, know, who have great knowledge of God's word and can parse it and know exactly why what is true is what is true. And then we need those people to be in positions to be able to teach appropriately what is true so that we can know the word of God and not be led astray into false ideas. The next ones he gets to, he talks about faith. For to one is given the spirit of wisdom, to another knowledge, to another faith by the same spirit. Now, does everybody need faith? Of course, every Christian has faith. Some people, it's really helpful to have them in the room on a bad day. Do you know why? Because they've been given a spiritual dose of of faith that's, that's particularly anointed to bolster everybody in the room up when they're feeling like they don't know how to move forward. It's like the ship's going down. I, I don't know where to go. And there's someone in the room who, all, when, when everything seems bad, right? How is this going to work? They step in, they go, don't we serve a God who's providential over every circumstance that you could ever be in? And don't we serve a God who, when, when, when the Israelites had their back against a wall, he delivered them from Egypt? Isn't that the same God we serve? And isn't he going to show up in our, in our midst right now? Sometimes when you're feeling really down about stuff in your life, you need someone with the gift of faith to step in your life. Now look at this, already, just three in. Can't you begin to see how this beautiful Trinitarian um, sending out of the different gifts is needed in the church? No one has all of them, but all of them are needed because on bad days, we need the gift of faith. And when bad ideas start sneaking into small groups, we need the gift of knowledge. Now what about gifts of healing and of miracles? These are what are called sign gifts. Some of the gifts we get through in, in these chapters are supernatural. Now, they're all supernatural because they're all giftings of the Holy Spirit. They're all anointings of the Holy Spirit. But some of them are particularly supernatural. Something like healings. Now, what is healing? That's someone sick, or has an infirmity. You pray for them, and then they're healed. <laughs> Their body changes. Diseases go away. This is... This is incredible work that God is able to do. Does God still heal today? Yes. Let's say it again. Ready? Does God still still heal today? Yes. Yes, he does. How do I know that? Because in the life of this church, I've watched him do it over and over again. Over and over again. It's miraculous every time. And sometimes when I'm preaching on this, I start to get teary-eyed thinking about the exact people I've watched heal over the last 10 years of ministry. Does he heal? Does he always heal every time you pray for it? Yes and no. Yes, for, the life, for a Christian in heaven, every, every pain, infirmity will be healed ultimately. So yes, he always does heal for the life of a Christian. Does he always heal in the here and now? No, no. And we don't have the perfect wisdom of God. This is why, this is why, I'm gonna say something that will cause a little division here. I believe the apostles had a very particular responsibility for healing, a healing ministry, and a miracles ministry that is different than what everyone besides the apostles had. That was a closed group of people, the apostles, in the first century. That group is closed. And that's why I believe that when Christians in our day pray, we should never be praying prayers of declaration of healing or miracles over people the way the apostles did. Rather, we pray prayers of petition. These are two different things. A prayer of declaration 
is what the apostles did, where they moved into spaces and healed miraculously right then. A prayer of petition is no less powerful, but it is not assuming the responsibility of, a, of an apostle or a prophet. And it is petitioning God. It's what every single one of you have access to do. And some people, God has given a remarkable ministry for this in the church. Some people, God, when they pray, healings take place. But it's always in a ministry of petition. God, might you heal this? And in your wisdom, if you choose not to, we, we are underneath your sovereignty. Okay? Difference. Prayers of petition versus prayers of declaration. Does God still heal? You better believe it. I've watched him do it. Now, what about prophecy? Again, we're going to get to this much more later. The gift of prophecy, a lot of division about what this means. Some of my heroes, people that I, I trust the most, believed prophecy is what I'm doing right now, preaching the word of God. And that's how they defined it. Books were written about the gift of prophecy. And what it is, is, is how to preach properly. I actually think it's a little different. Now, I do not think it's the same as what the Old Testament prophets were doing. There is a great line between anyone who claims to use the gift of prophecy in the New Testament and the gift of prophecy as it was in the Old Testament. Sometimes we get confused over what words should be used. Is it prophecy? Is it a gift of knowledge? Is it, is it uh, you know, different words that you speak? What I believe this is, is it's, I believe that God does and can put on a person's heart, a New Testament believer, an idea, something that must be communicated to somebody. Now, is it a verbatim, word-for-word idea as it expressed? Meaning, can a New Testament believer ever say, thus saith the Lord, the way the prophet Isaiah said, thus saith the Lord? No, no New Testament Christian should ever say that. No one is speaking verbatim for God. That's not how it works. But can God speak through the life of a believer who has the Holy Spirit ideas that need to be communicated in the life of the church? And can they be prophetic in nature, like God is speaking an important word of direction or counsel into a group or into an individual's life? All the time. I believe so. I believe he's done it through me many times. And I believe he's done it through many of you many times. Discernment. I believe my wife has incredible discernment. Where oftentimes I don't see it. Discerning the spirits is where sometimes we'll look at a situation that's taking place and I'm just thinking the best of everybody involved and my wife very clearly can see, I don't think that person has the best intentions. And knucklehead me, I just, I'm, I just don't see it often. And then my wife, will, my wife, you know, take, take this for what it is, but may, maybe there's something not, and I'll tell you, time and time again, she's spot on. Over and over, my wife catches stuff when I don't see it. I'm so grateful to have her in my life for this reason. This church is better off because of my wife it, 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 as a part of this, this church. She sees things happening before I can see them, right? Gift of discernment. Now, speaking in tongues, which, which happens to be the big one that he's going to get to in chapter 14, this can come in two different ways, and there's, again, great divide on this throughout church history. For most of church history, speaking in tongues was considered speaking in another language when you were never trained on that language. And I have firsthand reports of folks who have had that experience. They go to the mission field, and all of a sudden, they're speaking in languages that I don't even know exist. And they've never been trained, never heard it, but they got the message of the gospel across to somebody in there. Those things happen today. And you don't hear about it in the New York Times, but if you read the Christian Post, you'll get good stories about them. So read the Christian Post. Make sure you're getting the good news, okay? But some other people believe, especially since the early 1900s, now this has not just begun there, but it really began to take off in the early 1900s, that another form of speaking in tongues is praying in a heavenly language. Not an earthly language, but when you pray, you're praying in another language that is not known on this earth. We'll talk about both of those as we get to chapter 14. Both of them, we talk about needing an interpreter at some point when it's used in a public setting. Now, we'll get to more of that in chapter 14. Now, what's the point here? The point is this. 
To each and every person, God has assigned a unique set of responsibilities and giftings, and they're all needed in the life of the church. None is without. And this is all part of the mystery of God's design. That's the third principle, the mystery of this all. Look what the last verse says here. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually, here it is, as he wills. When you look at your life and all that God's assigned you, you, you look at your, your networks, you look at your wealth, you look at your neighbors, you look at your personalities, you look at your spiritual giftings, you look at the things you desire to do, the places you like to serve, you look at your family and what your children are interested in, what your spouse is interested in, you look at the opportunities that God's placed before you, and you bring all that together. What we've seen is that in 1 Corinthians, God says all of that is underneath the providence of God. And your job as a Christian is to learn how does all of that get angled towards the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's doing right here and now. And no Christian's off the hook. Every Christian has to look at all of life that God's assigned them. And rather than complain, I didn't get this or I did get this, look at the text and say he apportions as he wills and say I'm content underneath the providence of God. I'm content under the providence of God. Now, what do I do with this? God, who am I? What have you made me? What training do I need so I can take all of my life and drive it towards one grand purpose, the glory of their king, the one who saved them from sin itself. That purpose is what you were wired for and what all the gifts in your life are for. He's assigned you gifts to carry out for his kingdom purpose. He's equipped you for a unique and powerful ministry. Don't you ever forget that. You follower of Christ in this room, are equipped for a unique and powerful ministry. No matter what your background, no matter how sinful you think your background was or how wrong it is that God could possibly use you, he's equipped you for it if you're a follower of Jesus. He's ordained you for services and activities that will shake the foundations of this city if you will be bold enough and courageous enough to step into them. He's wired you with a specific personality and a specific story for his purposes, your story is not accidental. Every bit of it, every chapter is not accidental. He knows it all, he gave it to you, and now he's asking you to mobilize it for the kingdom of God. He's blessed you with grace upon grace for the work of sanctification. That means helping your church, look around you, this is your church, for your church to grow in the sanctification of becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's what grace upon grace looks like in your life. He showered you with an eternal inheritance far surpassing any and every inheritance this world could ever know. Not so you could just bask in it all day, every day while you're here, but so that you could pour out the blessings of your inheritance into other people. That's what it's for, moving his kingdom forward. He's positioned you within a body of believers that need you, that are dependent on you. If you don't show up on a Sunday, we're worse off because of it. Because we don't have your giftings and your personality and all the gifts that God's assigned you flowing into this church. See, God didn't make an accident when he made you a part of this church. He needs you. You are required. He's given you the gifts that are required for this church. Embrace this remarkable mystery. Embrace it. Pour your life into the fabric of this church. Go back to my opening story about that little boy. There were two parts to that little boy's story. The first one was, Someone needed to look that little boy in the eyes and say, go get in the game. You are needed. And can I tell you, if you're in this room and you have been a bench player for far too long, that is not what you're called to, right? That's not what you're called to. You are not called to be busy over here with something that's not that important while the church is busy with the work God's, of what God's doing in this city. You are so needed 
No one person has all the gifts. Find out what your gifts are. Let me help you. Let our deacons help you. But secondly, what happened after we encouraged him? (laughs) He ran in a little too recklessly, didn't he? And he hurt some of the smaller people on the team. And that's where Paul's gonna go next. There's a way that the gifts, sometimes we need sharpening with them and, and bringing us back. We need training on them. And so we should be entering in as a season, as a church, within your small groups, within, within our conversations, are we being trained to utilize all of this in the proper direction so that it's not bouncing off in directions that harm the church? May we honor the Trinity in our stewardship of the spiritual gifts of grace as we love and serve one another. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we love you. We, uh, we are in awe of the mystery and the wonder of the way you've designed your church. This is no accident, this place. No one person is here on accident. Even today, God, guests that you've brought in here, no one stumbles in on accident. It's by your providential hand that you guide all things according to your good purposes. And so, Jesus, I pray for every follower of Jesus in this room today that they would know, that they would know the power of Jesus in their life, that they would not forsake the gifts that they would not forsake their ordination for ministry, God, calling to do the work that you've assigned them, their responsibilities, to step in boldly to see the kingdom move forward. God, for those that have been rusty, those that are not stepping in boldly, shake them up today, I pray in Jesus' name. Don't let them leave here thinking they don't have hard work to do. God, for those who are needing correction, God, bring great correction today. And God, for those who are far from you when they came in the doors this morning, I pray that no one would leave here not following Jesus with all of their heart. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.